Good morning. Good to see you all today. A beautiful day. Glad to see everybody set their clocks appropriately and got here on time, bright and early. Uh, we're into our third week of our Lenten message series, Christ-Centered Means Cross-Centered. And I'd like to begin today by reading just really a great passage from the Old Testament, Prophet Isaiah, a prophecy about God's coming Messiah, a, a poetic description of, of the Messiah's life and death and the reason for his death. It's pretty amazing when you realize that this was written some 700 years before Jesus was born. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53 and hope you'll follow along in the text later on in the message. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Let's hear God's word together. Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing that we should, in his appearance, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain. And bore our suffering, and we, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray together. Lord God, may you take this very familiar passage with just such a powerful condensation of the whole gospel message. Lord, may you use it this morning to give us fresh eyes to appreciate with amazement the wonder of your cross. We thank you now. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. You know, so much of the talk about Jesus's death on the cross over the last decade has focused in on either how Jesus died or who was responsible for his death. Placing the blame for who killed Jesus seems to be the most important topic of debate, probably because the death of Jesus has been used falsely to justify anti-Semitism over the centuries, and anti-Semitism has no place in the Christian faith whatsoever. The discussion about the how and the who of Jesus' death was really inflamed by the release of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, back in 2004. Millions of people flocked to see this movie. We took groups from our church to see this movie, and most people, I think, were sort of unprepared for what they saw because it was a, it was a tremendously disturbing, brutal, and, and bloody depiction of the sufferings of Christ. The violence, I mean, it just went on and on, the beatings, the floggings, the humiliation, and finally the, the excruciating agony of the crucifixion. For a lot of people who, who mainly see the cross as a piece of pretty jewelry, it was kind of a shocking reminder that the crucifixion was a, was a grotesque means of physical torture, an instrument of slow, very painful execution. It's not a movie that I need to see again. But the main weakness of that movie had nothing to do with the how or the who of Jesus' death. The main weakness was that it didn't really convey anything about the why, that, why he died. 
And it's the why that really counts. Lots of people have suffered unjustly. Lots of people have been tortured to death. And many people have suffered more physical pain in their death than Jesus ever did. I mean, Jesus was only on the cross for a few hours that Friday afternoon. Thousands of people were crucified by the Roman Empire in the exact same way. And they lingered on that cross in agony for days because that was the intended purpose of crucifixion. To drag out the poor victim's suffering as long as possible. It was an incredibly cruel method of execution. So it's not the, the amount of pain that Jesus experienced or even the method of his death or even knowing who put him on that cross that is of importance. It's the why he was there. The why, that's what counts. Last week I tried to communicate that we can't understand the why of the cross without a, a big view of God. This God who created 200 billion galaxies out of nothing. The death of Jesus makes no sense until you glimpse a bit of the mystery of the greatness of God so, so that it takes your, your breath away in awe and wonder and amazement. And we need big words to try and describe this transcendent being who is our creative God. Last week I used the three big O words, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But there are other great words for this creator God too, infinite. Without, without boundaries, eternal, without beginning or end. Or my favorite word to use to describe God, ineffable. Ineffable. I mean, that's a word you have to look up. Ineffable, it's a rarely heard word that's used almost exclusively when describing God. Ineffable, it means too great or too extreme to even be expressed in words. God is beyond our biggest words. The only time I ever hear that word used is when we sing the old hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, which we did in the traditional service a few weeks ago. Do you remember the verse that goes, Crown Him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. Too great or too extreme to be expressed in words. I mean, you need that kind of, of poetic language to even get close to describing the immensity of God. God is so great that his nature is beyond words, beyond human vocabulary. In fact, there's really only one word that actually captures the very essence of who this creator God really is. One word that sums it all up and conveys the ineffable nature of God. And that word is holy. Holy. We tend to think of the word holy almost as a negative word, like someone who is holier than thou. It's a pretentious person who thinks they're better than other people. But that really trivializes what the word holy means. Holy is a beautiful word that in reference to God means a creator who is totally complete in and of himself, absolute perfection, altogether whole, unconditionally free from any flaw or, or confusion, who needs absolutely nothing, who, who uses no energy, who is totally pure, totally good, and whose nature actually defines what those words really mean. Holy. 
we have nothing in our world to compare to this concept of absolute perfection and goodness. Because everything we know, everything we touch, everything we experience is flawed in some way. A holy God. And isn't that then at the root of our problem? How can a holy, perfect, flawless, infinitely good God have anything to do with flawed, imperfect, often evil world like ours? And flawed, imperfect, and often evil people like us. I mean, if this creator God is by definition perfectly pure and holy and good, then wouldn't any contact with us be repulsive to him? Our flawed imperfections would have to be totally obliterated, exterminated, wiped out for us to be in God's presence. Well, that would be like for us trying to to fly a spaceship to the sun. We would just burn up and disappear. We'd just vaporize in the presence of the sun. And that's what would happen to imperfect me if I were ever to approach the very presence of a holy God. We couldn't have any intimate connection with God because otherwise this God would no longer be perfect. We would spoil his perfection. Imagine a a perfectly white sheet of paper with one little bitty ink dot down in the corner. Well, then it's no longer perfectly white anymore. No, a perfect holy God cannot intimately connect with imperfect without utterly destroying it. And so this flawed, imperfect, and evil world is under the judgment of this holy God. And so are you and I as imperfect people. We're enveloped in this broken condition that the Bible calls sin with a capital S. Not the little sins like like lying and lusting. Those are just symptoms of the disease, sins with a small s, but a capital S sin describes the whole nature of this flawed, imperfect, unholy corner of the universe. Now, it didn't start out that way. The Bible tells us in Genesis that God created everything good. Creation shared his perfection. Creation perfectly reflected God's own nature. And when he created humanity through Adam and Eve, we were created perfectly in God's own image. But this creator God of holiness is also a God who loves. And it was God's desire that humanity would return back to him that same love to its creator. But love requires freedom. You can't love by by compulsion or command or fiat. You can't order or command someone to love. Love has to be a free decision. Love has to be free. And so God didn't create robots. He created real people who had an independent will, sort of like my little clay man that I talked about last week. Now, why God went down that road, I really don't know. I don't have an answer as to why God chose to allow humanity to have true freedom of will. But that was God's sovereign decision, and that's what is. God gave us free will so that we could choose to love him and trust him. And unfortunately, we chose badly. 
The story of the Bible is the story of how humanity since Adam and Eve has rebelled against the sovereign holiness of God. How humanity has rejected his divine purpose and has tried to replace him with everything else under the sun. False idols are everywhere. (coughs) Instead of worshiping the true God, we worship everything else from, from pagan gods to making idols of other people to worshiping material things or most of all just worshiping ourselves. We have tried to take God's place in the universe, and that's not good. And so with that rebellion comes consequences, consequences that all flow from this brokenness, this broken relationship with the one who created us. The fracture in our relationship with the creator leaves our world broken. The image of God in us was severely damaged. We lost our eternity. The consequences spread out to our natural world as well. Nature itself is now off-center. Things don't work the way they should. Disease and death now stalk us. We lost our moral purity before God. Evil erupted. We see pain and suffering and violence all around. And all of that the Bible calls sin with a capital S. The whole broken condition of not just humanity, but of our whole slice of creation as well. If you've been around Christian churches at all, you've probably heard the phrase that Christ died for our sins individually, which is absolutely true, and we'll talk about that next week. But for this morning, we need to think bigger about sin as a universal condition. We get focused on the symptoms and not the real disease, things that people do. But those are just leaves on the tree of sin. The main issue with sin is this brokenness in God's perfect creation, an opposition to his holiness, a a cosmic kind of sin, a tear in the fabric of the universe, a rift in God's perfection of creation. God can't have that. That cannot be, God says. Something's got to be done about that. And so from the beginning, a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who exists in this dynamic relationship with himself, a kind of interrelatedness that is ineffable for us as human beings. Beyond us, we cannot comprehend this exact nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Scripture has revealed, says that God reveals himself that way to us, a type of unity or union that we cannot comprehend. But together, God says something's got to be done to obliterate this sin. And the Son says, I'll go. In love, I'll go. I will rescue them. I'll go. I will take the punishment. I will take the banishment. I will take the destruction that must happen to eradicate sin from the presence of a holy God. Instead of obliterating humanity and broken creation, I will go, the perfect one in their place. I will be the substitute who takes on their imperfection and sin, the perfect for the imperfect, the sinless one for the sinful. And so what is so shocking about the cross is that this immense, eternal, omnipotent God would condescend to become human and go through the worst kind of physical suffering a human being can endure. We must get this contrast in order to really get the meaning. 
the why of the cross, that God the Son would take on human flesh and experience the agony of separation and judgment from a holy God for the sake of God's creation. Individually, yes. But think capital S, cosmic sin, for just this morning. How great is God's love for his creation. So let's turn back now to that Old Testament prophecy about this coming Messiah and try to hear these words fresh. Isaiah 53. You see, God had this whole divine rescue in mind from the beginning of human history. And he was laying out the plan in small bites through revealing his will and his purpose ahead of time. So it's no surprise that chapter 53 of Isaiah is often called the Bible in miniature. Written at least 700 years before Christ went to the cross, and yet it seems like it could have been written from the very foot of the cross. God was letting people know ahead of time what to look for. In his birth, the Messiah appears to be nothing extraordinary. You can almost hear the echo of the words of the Gospels where Jesus' detractors say, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Messiah doesn't come with a royal pedigree or divine privileges. In physical appearance, he is equally unimpressive. No form or majesty should, that we should look upon him. No beauty that we should desire him. The Messiah was ordinary as a brown paper bag. Plain, typical. In a group photo, your eyes would not lock on him. By all human standards, this Messiah would fail to impress. And so Isaiah says, we esteemed him not. He not only lacks our respect, but even worse, he was despised and rejected. If you saw him, you turned your face the other way. No wonder Isaiah begins this chapter with the question, who has believed our message? Human expectations are not what this Christ is all about. In verses 4 through 6, he moves on describing the Messiah as our suffering servant who takes our sin, our punishment, yours and mine. At least 10 times in these verses, he uses pronouns like our and we and us. It's not a pretty picture about our sin-infected condition, our griefs, our pain, our suffering, our transgressions, our iniquities. It's about how we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone, gone our own way apart from God. That's where we are apart from God and part of God's divine rescue. And then we discover this incomprehensible news. The suffering servant is suffering for us. Suffering is our substitute, that this is his part in the divine drama. The language of substitution permeates the entire book of Isaiah. Substitution, one person taking the place of another. And it's interwoven into this entire chapter of Isaiah 53. And yes, his physical sufferings were intense. Mel Gibson wasn't far off on the physical side. The Messiah was disfigured, but that's not the most important part. The most important part are these final words in verse 6. Listen to them again. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. The innocent, the Holy One, the Son of God steps forward to die for each one of us. Why? Because Jesus says, 
I love you. That's how far God's love goes for us. C.J. Mahaney writes this, When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We would almost think that God loves us more than he loves his son. We can't measure his love by any other standard. He is saying to you, I love you this much. God has a divine rescue plan, a, a cosmic rescue where love, where God's love and God's holiness can meet on our behalf. The cross, therefore, is the heart of the gospel. Christ died for us and for the sins of the world. He has stood in our place. He has borne our sin, but not just individually, but for the whole of our sin-infected creation. 1 John 2.2 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God has done something on the cross that we could never do for ourselves. And so hear this passage again, this time through the message, the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. We one look at him and people look the other way. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but in fact is it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought this on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we got healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God piled all our sins, everything that we've done wrong. He piled it all on him, on him. How do you respond to God's divine rescue? Love requires freedom. That means God has given you the freedom to respond to him. God has given you the freedom to love him. God has given you the freedom to live embraced by that kind of love. The love that would go to that extent so that you could have intimacy with him. What's your response today? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what you did on the cross, I can't wrap my brain around how big that is. And Lord, I ask your forgiveness for trivializing it to the point of just saying it was about my sin. Yes, it was, but it was about so much more than that. Your love for your whole created order that was damaged and torn by our sin. Lord, help our hearts just to leap up a little bit and respond to you with a fresh sense of, wow, ineffably sublime. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.